2: So this thing is ubiquitous, but it's unpleasant. So why do we have it? Because it's useful, because it's functional, (laughs) you know? Because our cognitive machinery is pre-programmed for regret.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Dan Pink on the podcast. Dan is the New York Times bestselling author of books such as Drive, A Whole New Mind, and To Sell as Human. Dan's books have won multiple awards, have been translated into 42 languages, and have sold millions of copies around the world. His articles and essays have also appeared in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, The Atlantic, Slate, and other publications. His most recent book, which is the topic of our conversation today, is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. I really like this episode because I never really thought about regret as something you could have and harness in your life today to help reflect on how you wanna to live tomorrow. You know, we often hear a lot about deathbed regrets and, you know, what are you gonna regret when you're on that one moment, last moment, the last breath, and you'll be like, oh, and your whole life flashes before your eyes. But why wait? Why wait until then? Dan shows through a lot of quantitative as well as qualitative research that he conducted, that regret can be very powerful. It can lead us to have a much happier life. It can have a more meaning and it allows to overcome traumas and change our personalities in really powerful ways. I'd say like most importantly, a big takeaway I took with Dan is that regret also allows us to realize there's a great common humanity that we have with other people and other humans our fellow humans. So many of us seem to have similar regrets. And I think that's really telling us something really deep and profound about human nature. So I really enjoyed this episode. And I hope you do too. So without further ado, that I bring you Dan Pink. really did enjoy re- speed reading your book. <laughs>
1: uh, hey,
0: thanks. Yeah, it, it, uh, it, was really, it was really, it flowed really well and uh, made me think a lot about my own life and some of my biggest regrets and encouraged me to reach out to some people. What inspired you to write this book?
2: Uh, what inspired me to write? You know, it was really like you. I, I had my own, I had regrets. Uh, and I was trying to make sense of them. Uh, I was also at a point in my life that was kind of weird. I'm at this sort of, I think, a different point in my life than you are in that, you know, I got to this point in my life where I suddenly had mileage on me, which is kind of a shock. You know, I look back and it's like, wait a second. I've been, you know, for instance, like doing what I'm doing now. I've been writing a book for 20 years. I'm like, holy shit, what? How did that happen? And, but I also have plenty of room to look ahead. And so I think inevitably when people look back, they think about what did I do wrong? What didn't I do? And, um, and so, you know, you're a, you're a, a scientist, you know, that all research is me-search. So that's what this was.
0: Yeah. but what's kind of cool is, you know, you'd cover so many broad range of topics. So you kind of go from me-search topic to me-search topic. I mean, you don't stay in the same, I mean, so you've probably learned a lot about yourself over the past 20 years. What are some of the biggest things that you've learned about yourself through, through writing, through the process of writing and researching books?
2: No, I'm not that special that um my experience as a human being on this planet is pretty consistent with the experience of other human beings on this planet that what I hope for myself and aspire for the people I love is very similar to what other people hope for themselves and aspire to the people they love um, that we're part of a I mean I don't want to get woo-woo on you but we're sort of, that we're part of a kind of a shared human condition um, and that you know at a certain level we are profoundly, Deeply alike.
0: Well, first of all, I'm no stranger to woo-woo. So that's okay. At <laughs> <laughs> The science. Uh, I say there's you know, I say there's often wisdom in the woo-woo. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I really like what you just said uh from as a humanistic psychologist. Of course, yeah, that's my jam. Of course. That's my jam. And I thought that came through very clearly in your findings. Um now you did two. Major studies. We did a qualitative and a quantitative study. Exactly. The one that you put out your own call. I believe it had like seventeen thousand participants, which is a great number for for science. It seemed like one of that's the, the qualitative. That's the qualitative I mean, that's one. The qualitative yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's still 70000 Still is incredible for. A and we're, at this point,
2: study. it's still it's still up, Scott. We're over twenty thousand now. Twenty thousand. We have oh, we've collected God. twenty thousand regrets from people in one hundred and nine countries. Wow. What was the most surprising regret you saw? I think at a, at, a, at, a, at a micro level, all right, um, the most surprised what surprised me was the volume of regrets about bullying uh, mm. at, a, at a very micro level and in terms of a specific, granular, individuated regret. We probably had hundreds of regrets where people regretted bullying people when they were younger. That, I, I think that's the biggest micro surprise. I think the biggest macro surprise was, again, going back to what I said earlier, was the universality of these regrets. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where if I had shown you the Qualtrics database and, and blocked, you know, blocked the fields for gender, which I asked, age, mm-hmm. which I asked, location, which I asked, and just showed you the regret itself, I think you might have a hard time predicting, is this somebody from North America or elsewhere? Is this person 25 or is this person 45 or is this person 65? Is this a man? Is this a woman? I think you'd have a hard time determining that.
0: Yeah, as an individual differences researcher, I was curious if you, what other kind of variables you look, well, because those are some superficial demographic variables. Although, I guess age is not that superficial, <laughs> it matters quite profoundly. But, you know, things like did you look at political orientation? Did you look at uh, personality, big five? You know, these are the
2: answers. good questions. So this is where we can dip our toes into the weeds just a little bit. So, on the qualitative one, remember, the qualitative one is a giant collection tool. Hmm. The, 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 it's not a random sample. And so I can't make any valid claims about demographic differences based on that, even though I have a ginormous sample, all right? I can make, I can say I have my own interpretations of what these, or at least of what the first 15,000 regrets that I read. I can have my own interpretations of what those, as a qualitative researcher, of what those 15,000 regrets say, but I can't make any definitive claims about differences on these other dimensions, all right? Now. In the quantitative one that I did, which was a, which is only of the United States, but was a very good sample. We had we over we we did a massive sample there. We had 4,489 participants. We oversampled so that we could have enough people from in various demographic categories so we could wait the sample and see whether there were differences. Now here I can make some safe claims in, in the American sample. And and both on the demographic stuff and on some of these other things. So with that as a prelude, let me tell you what some of the things that I found. Age matters. You're totally right. What we saw in the quantitative stuff is that age, there weren't that many demographic differences, but age was the big one. Mm. And in particular, what we saw was that when people are young, they have roughly equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction. Okay, So regrets about what we did, what I did, and regrets about what I didn't do. But as we age, the inaction regrets take over. It's like two to one inaction over action by the time we get to our 40s. So that was a, wow. I think that was the biggest, biggest demographic differences. The other demographic differences were relatively modest. They really were. The differences between men and women, there were some differences in that men had more career regrets, women had more family regrets, but not by a huge margin. There were, um, I wanna get to the other, the non-demographic stuff here in a moment. Yeah. In terms of race, very few. Uh, African Americans had more education regrets than 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 white Americans did, mm-hmm. by you know significant you know, statistically significant margin, but not anything breathtaking. I think that's probably I, I think we can interpret that as perhaps thwarted opportunity uh, mm-hmm. more than anything else. Uh, I think one interesting one when we look at education level was that people with higher levels of formal education, that is college degrees and advanced degrees, ended up having more career regrets than people with lower levels of. Formal education, oh, yeah, it's it, interesting. It, it's
0: almost like the the bronze medalist is happier than the silver medalist, <laughs> kind of. Well, finding. a little bit,
2: yeah. but a little bit, but but I think that's part of what it is. I think what what it is is that. And I see. I had to see. I looked at your. You know, your your millions of listeners don't know, but I can see you here. Mm. And when I told yeah. you that, you had a surprise look on your face. I did. All right. Yeah. I read enough Paul Ekman that I can identify surprise as an emotion on another human being's face. All right, so. Um, so you were surprised by that, as was I. But then it made sense in the, for the sort of the reasons that you're suggesting, which is that if you have more education, formal education, you have more career opportunities, and therefore more foregone career opportunities. Exactly. So you could ha- I think that's. The, I think that's the the safest explanation there. So again, not many demographic differences. So so forgive me now, I'm going to come back to the other thing here, which is some of these other differences on beliefs, okay? So, let's take the big 5. I didn't assess people on the big 5. I did have on one of the big 5, I did have them self-identify as introverts or extroverts. Perilous, I know, but take that for what it is, all right? So I like it. I kind of dig okay. it. I kind of dig just,
0: self-identification.
2: Yeah. We're just going to try it. We're just going to try. It. So, so so do you consider yourself more of an introvert or more of an extrovert, all right? And yeah. so yeah. And, and 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 I looked at that zero correlation with anything none oh, zero wow. zilch unbelievable to me all right even with like bullying <laughs> well <laughs> i didn't go into the level of yeah. i mean no, i didn't no. get into i didn't get into the level of um, whether people Specific bullied bl- it or not yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 um but in terms of like the domains like are introverts more likely to have romance regrets no are introverts more likely to have education no it's like there's no zero zilch frustrating
0: now that in itself is an interesting finding i know you're on a roll but i just wanted to pause you for each one because that's sometimes in science you know like you can it's important to publish not null findings and to me that's an interesting null finding yeah yeah you um you know even within uh um so within the moral domain as well you didn't find any differences just overarching Um, domain that, no, boldness? I didn't.
2: I mean, How about boldness? Regrets. Well, here's the thing, though. You might be onto something there, because hmm. in the quantitative thing, what I what I what I did is is I asked people to list their regret and then put it into a into the traditional categories of domains, career, family, romance, da 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 da. da all right. Um, it was only when I did the qualitative that I said, "Crap, these existing categories don't capture everything." Once you actually read through 15,000 of these, you realize that those, those traditional categories aren't the full story, that there's another story going on here. So I wasn't able to look at, I, I could go back and I could, I could do another piece of research where I identify, where yeah. I have like a huge sample, I can weight the sample so I can make demographic claims, and then I can organize them as boldness, moral, da, 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 but I haven't done that yet. Um, I haven't done that. So, so on introversion, extroversion, no difference. One thing I was extremely interested in was belief in God. And so I gave people in the quantitative side of it, I gave people, said, which of these best describes your beliefs? Which of these best describes you? I believe in God. I don't believe in God. I'm not sure if I believe in God. Okay? So pretty. I think pretty well-crafted question. Yeah. Zero correlation with anything. None. Zero. Oh. Zilch. Part of it is because so many people believe in God.
0: <laughs> mm, the ceiling effect. <laughs>
2: And so, um, yeah. so, so there weren't, um, you know, I, I'll give you one more that I thought was interesting, um, which is, I also asked people questions about free will and about fatalism, mm. right? So, so that's really about be- their beliefs. And mm. so on one of them, I said, do you, I, I don't remember the exact words. Do you typically believe that people, do, do you believe that in general people have free will? That is, they have control over what they did a bit about. Okay something like 80% said yes. Oh, okay. And I said, do you, and elsewhere, right? So it wasn't, they weren't paired together. Elsewhere, I said, do you think in general, um, uh, everything in life happens for a reason? Hmm. 80% of people said yes.
1: <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> so what you had is you had the vast majority, not even close, believing both that they had free will and that everything happens for a reason, which I think itself is interesting. My
0: gosh! Did you pull Sam Harris on that?
2: Overwhelming, the, incredible. The the, yeah. the the number the the percentage of people who believed in neither free will nor that everything happens for a reason was like one percent. Okay, so those are, those people are like just complete nihilists. All right, and th- but then you you would think that the logical thing would be, oh, I believe in free will. I don't think that everything happens for a reason, or I think everything happens for a reason. Therefore, that obviates free will. But those are yeah. very small categories too. It the vast majority of people believe in both.
0: What do you think that says about humans? Like, what do you think that, what do you think is going on there underneath the surface?
2: I think it says that, well, I mean, I think it says a lot of things. One of them I, I think it says is that when we try to understand behavior, we are sometimes too mechanical in our understanding of it. We don't, you know, so if we look at something like, um, like, like if, I say to, if I say to somebody, maybe not you because you're too sophisticated here, but if I, say to, if I say to somebody, are human beings generally generous or selfish? What's the answer? To me, the answer to that question is obvious. Yes. Right. We're both generous and selfish.
0: Yeah, man.
2: They're both true, even though they seem to be contradictory. They're both. They're. It's Schrödinger's cat, man. The the cat is the cat dead or alive? Yes. And so, and so that. So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is that, Hmm. at an individual level, is that that might be what our lives are. Is sorting that out? Sorting out where we have control and where we don't, you know, every day that's at the core of a lot of our decisions, I think, Scott, I mean, I just, you know, i like, I just uh, like before I can't went to do this because it's the afternoon. It's like not my ideal time. I actually went out for a walk because I wanted to be like awake and alert for this interview. All right. I appreciate so, that. So, but no, I'm, I'm dead serious about that. And so, mm. but when I think about that walk. It's a beautiful day here in Washington, DC as well. And mm-hmm. so when I think about that walk, there were some things that I have control over and some things that I don't. I have control over what route I took. I didn't have control over whether at certain point a branch might have fallen on me. I didn't have any, you know, and so it's like the, even that like modest quotidian, unexceptional walk that I just, my wife and I just took, there were areas where I had control and areas where I didn't have control. And yeah. I think that part of our lives are about figuring that out. Where do we have sovereignty and where do we not?
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good point. My head keeps going back to something you mentioned earlier with this the whole idea. And I brought up the bronze medalist is happier than the silver medalist. There's something here that I want to unpack a little bit that your findings show about human nature. There really is this kind of like, oh, I could have been so, could have been somebody there. Like, what could have been seems to be a real important thread running through all this. And the more sort of potential pathways in the sort of the physics, multiple worlds universe you can see for yourself. It seems to me like, do you, you, you know what I'm saying, Dan? I like to get to like, what is the thread that runs through all of your findings? What's the most zoomed out thing here? And, you know, it just always strikes me when I look at like the data on happiness, you know, the researchers were shocked to find that the people living in the slums of Calcutta rated higher in life satisfaction than the average American, you know? And there's something to being able to have a limited number of things that give you meaning, and knowing that lots of other options are cut out, than having lots of potential pathways you could have taken.
2: Am I making any sense? Yeah. Yes, but I think they're two different things. All right. I think they're talking about two different things. One of them is to one of them is to is to have fewer bases of comparison, but the other one is to have fewer things that you care about. And I think those are I think those are different things. Okay, so if I have so like I actually think having fewer things to care about is probably universal that ultimately what, what gives us meaning and satisfaction in our lives, and you know this better than anybody is a very small number of things all right a very small no, it's a very small number of things um, and I think that's probably true here in the leafy, uh the leafy neighborhood of the District of Columbia where I live as well as in the 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 the, the, the streets of of the slums of of Okada. So that's, so I think that's one thing. The second thing though, is, are, are the basis of comparison. All right. We all, we know that comparison can be corrosive. And so with someone like, you know, in my privileged situation, I think about, um, okay. I think about my kids, my kids have, who are, you know, I, I, I got a kid who's a high school, a college freshman.
0: Hmm.
2: He has a lot of pathways. All right. A 19 year old in that slum has fewer pathways. Right. Hmm. That my my um, my nineteen-year-old has been fortunately has been to several countries and places around the world. That nineteen-year-old from from Kolkata probably has never been out of that metropolitan area, and so my my guy can say, "Oh man, should I live in Tokyo? That'd be kind of cool. Should I live in Mexico City? Oh, that'd be kind of cool. Should I live in St. Louis? Should I probably not St. Louis, but should I live in you know Sheboygan? Should I live in wherever?" You know, and so, so he has more to, he has more to, he has more to compare. And when you have more to compare, you have more to forego.
0: Good. This is a really good nuance, by the way. And I really clearly see here your point that you make in your book, that what's really important is to um, reduce our regrets about the four foundational things you talk exactly. about, the foundation, boldness, moral connection, and to minimize uh, worrying so much about the exactly. things that we know, even in the field of positive ecology research are outside the purview, what really gives us meaning in life. I think exactly. that's what we're really getting at here. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I I think that one takeaway from this is that one of the most important things in life is what you choose to ignore. So important. What you choose not to give a shit about. I think that that is one of the most important decisions that we make. So it's like, you know, I'm actually working on something right now, Scott, which is a um, commencement address. And, you know, one of the things that I'm talking about here is, is attention. Hmm. All right. We are what we pay attention to, we become what we pay attention to. But at the core of attention, the ability, to attention of, uh, to the ability to pay attention depends on our ability to ignore. You can't pay attention unless you can also ignore. And knowing what to ignore is really important. And, and regret teaches us what to ignore. And it's most stuff,
0: but, but yet there are a certain purview of things that we would we regret if we didn't take the action, at least try. You know, I keep my head keeps going back when you were talking about these examples to me, and um, all the times that I beat myself up that I didn't approach the cute girl, you know, or the like the person, you know, the you know the the the. The woman in the corner of the dance called them, like, wow, that person is so beautiful. And then I beat myself up at the end of the night, you know, when I was in my twenties, you know, in that kind of scene. But, you know, just being like, um, darn it, I'm such an idiot. Why didn't I just go? And what all the times I did summon the courage to go and approach the person. And even if I you very rarely do you get rejected as as profoundly as you think in your head, you're going. It's just like what well, the worst case scenario, they say, I have a boyfriend or I'm not interested. You know, you're still like. I, I still feel good about myself at the end of the night. Absolutely. The the night, it's not like I'm beating myself up over that I got rejected. I actually almost enjoy it. Like, it's like, whew, well, at least I did it. At least I know what could have been. But there I, I go back to the essential thing in there is the what could have been. It's the potentiality. It's almost like um, at least at least I know, you know, that wasn't meant for me or that was. And sometimes it works out. And I'm like, well, wow, that was meant for me. But at least I know it's like the uncertainty there, I think, is what's killing us. Um, if we didn't go for it. Part
2: of it, okay. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is the uncertainty, but to channel our mutual friend, Annie Duke here a minute, uh-huh. I think that I found that people were, to use her language, I found that her, that people were slightly less, were less outcomist than I expected. That that what bugged them about, about that, that is what, because I have so, okay, let's go to your, let's go to the, uh, the, the SBK on the dating market regret here, all right? So we've got, so first of all, you're not that special. We've got hundreds of people, hundreds of regrets in the database uh, that basically say X years ago, there was a man slash woman I really liked. I wanted to ask him her out, but I chickened out and now I regret it. But when, so I did did follow up interviews with with about 190 or, or so of the people who submitted these regrets. And when you talk to people with those kinds of regrets, They don't conjure images of, they don't conjure stories of, oh my God, if I had talked to her, I would be have four kids and living in a nice. They don't do that. They don't, they don't even take it that far. What 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 bugs them is that they had a moment in their life where they could have stepped up and they didn't. That's Mm. what bugs them. That's part, I think the uncertainty of not knowing is a big part of it. I agree with you about that. But I also think it's the fact that they didn't step up at that moment sticks with them.
0: Yeah. So that that therefore the boldness regret does blur into the others. These these four can't be neatly separated in some sort of like you know they're completely orthogonal sort of way. And you would never make the claim they are. But you can see how the boldness one, yeah, that's a thread even running into the con- misconnections one. Right.
2: You're right. Well, I mean, I think what you're getting at here is that there is something that goes even more deeply to the overall architecture of regret, which is the difference Mm -hmm. between action and inaction.
0: Well, maybe that's it,
2: I I think, I really think that's it. I had, I mean, again, I can talk to you about this because other people won't care, but like I had when I, when I had outlined this book and, you know, and I had the, my, my research files and whatnot, I had, I was going to do a whole chapter on essentially what I call the rules of regret. Or it's going to unpack like the five or six or whatever rules there were of regret. And as I did a lot of reading and a lot of research on this, it finally dawned on me, literally after about a year, as I'm trying to like tease out these, it all came down to action and inaction. So interesting. <laughs> that, 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 was the, that was the big distinction here. And so when you look at these four categories of regret, and so for your, for your listeners, let me quickly tell you what they are. These are, these are basically what I call the deep structure of regret. These are regrets not about the domain of life, but about something deeper going on. One is foundation regrets, if only I'd done the work. These are regrets about not saving enough money, spending too much money, not taking care of your health, not working hard enough in school, things that give you your, make your foundation wobbly. Second, boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance. Not asking somebody out on a date, not starting a business, not speaking up, not going on an adventure. Third, moral regret—if only I'd done the right thing, bullying, marital infidelity, and not whatnot—and finally, connection regrets—if only I'd reached out—which are about the full spectrum of relationships in our lives, not only romantic relationships. This is important: all relationships uh, where that, that sometimes, perhaps inevitably, drift apart, and we don't do anything about it. So, the, two, the biggest category was connection regrets. The second biggest category was boldness regrets. But almost everything in there. Not every the, the vast majority of regrets in there are regrets of inaction. Yes. Whereas the moral the moral regrets typically tend not exclusively, because I have a moral regret about inaction, but the moral regrets tend to be about action, overwhelmingly.
0: Yes. And in the moral domain, you also <laughs> found a lot of them are universal um, things that a lot of people can agree. On like bullying is bad, for instance. Yes, but either there are domain specific morality. People have their own unique flavor. Like, but what I found interesting about your findings is there are a certain set of things that we people are not quibbling about really in their regrets. They're like, no, like
2: I regret doing that. Yeah, right. But but when we but we know this from moral foundations theory that there's some That's moral true. things that every that, that people agree with. You know, don't harm other people, don't cheat other people. But there are other stuff where I had regrets that were a little bit, you know, for instance, I'll give you an example of this. Um. Um, you know, if you look at things like sanctity, degradation, purity, authority, those kinds of things, there is a mix. Everybody doesn't agree, you know, so I have people who I have, I mean, I had this incident when I was talking about this a a couple months ago, where I was offering some of these moral regrets, and I offered up a moral regret that several people had, that I write about a little bit in the book, which is Americans who regret not serving in the military. And they regret not serving in the military, not because they missed out on the adventure. But because they felt that as a citizen, as a patriot, they had a duty to serve in the military and they didn't fulfill that duty. And then, so I'm in an audience and it's like somebody in the audience who is probably a political liberal says, Well, that's not a moral regret. And I'm like, You don't get to decide that. You know, oh, yeah. like you get to decide your own moral regrets, but you don't get to decide other people's moral regrets because, as we know from moral foundations theory, morality is, is vast. There's some things we agree on, but some things that we, we don't.
0: Yeah, and I'm just thinking about how these blend. Like, one can have a bravery regret that also is a moral regret. Like, they they sure. both they they tick both categories at once. Um, I think that's
2: yeah. I think that's possible. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and even just going a little bit deeper than um than action versus inaction, another theme I'm hearing. And just tell me if this is right or wrong. With with bravery, a lot of it comes down to as well. It seems like authenticity. People don't like mm-hmm. when they're like, I acted a certain way, but that wasn't the real me. You know, or I could have acted a way that would have been more in line with the what what they're thinking is the real me, but the research the psychological research on that shows that with the people have an authenticity bias in that they put only the most moral things in their life within the category of the real me and they and all the all the things that are <laughs> bad they they're, they're uh-huh. like i' I've, I've, I've uh-huh. dubbed this the authenticity bias in my book trans yeah, 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 so I'm just trying to link that to your findings a little bit it it all it does feel like people really beat themselves up over when they weren't like. Their best self, if that makes sense,
2: or their aspirational self.
0: Aspiration, that maybe, that good. Maybe good, it's good.
2: A, it, maybe it's their beat. I, I don't. know, you, you could be right. They they beat themselves up when they when they are. Yeah, their aspirational selves rather than or their they their, their, their true selves.
0: Their true selves. Yeah, like right. You know, because you know that last night I got drunk and I did those things. That wasn't the real me. You know, like it's like well, but it was part of the real you. It was. You know, I've argued. You know, I've argued that all these things are us. You know, they're just. What do we own and what do we not own is us you know, take responsibility so this is really really cool you've done here and it actually goes back in the academic literature you know i, I discovered this paper from 1994 called the functional basis of counterfactual thinking oh yeah um, by neil neil rose yeah yeah so yeah, so, yeah. it's foundational but in a lot of ways that's so much in line with this thesis you have that there it can actually be a powerful thing because they found in that study that thinking about how a scenario might have gone better can actually improve your future outcomes. And you're, you're making this case that, well, look, re- thinking about regret, if you integrate it in a meaningful way, if you reflect on it in a healthy way as opposed to a ruminative way, an uh, un- intrusive way, and psychologists also make that distinction between intrusive rumination and productive rumination or reflection, you say, look, regret can be very good for our lives.
2: Right. There's no question about it. I mean, you're exactly right. That regret done right is functional. The problem is, well, there are a lot of problems, but part of it is, is that no one ever teaches us how to do it right. And so what happens is, is that we're that we're sold a bill of goods in some ways that we should never have regrets, that we should never look backward, that we should always look always look forward. That's bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also not good to ruminate, as you say, to ruminate, to wallow on, on our regrets. What we should be doing is we should be we should, be, we should be confronting them. And, but there's no, question, there, there's no question that regrets are functional because, well, I mean, maybe there is a question, but I mean, the odds are certainly in the favor of regret being functional because it exists in our brains after tens of thousands of years of evolution. So, you know, what's the point? The point is, like, so it's this thing that's aversive. It's an aversive feeling, and yet it's ubiquitous. It's arguably one of our most common emotions. So this thing is ubiquitous, but it's unpleasant. So why do we have it? Because mm. it's useful, because it's functional, <laughs> you know? Because our cognitive machinery is pre-programmed for regret. If, and, and we can use it if we treat it right. And I, I think that we have, a, I think that we have a, a challenge in this country, especially with we don't equip people to deal with negative emotions. We, some, we, we think that some, sometimes sort of inculcate people in the belief. That negative emotions are a sign of weakness, that negative emotions are an aberration, when in fact, negative emotions are part of life. And if we treat them right, they're actually a a useful part of life.
0: Yeah. I see some of this as analogous to the work I've been doing in the field of post traumatic growth. And uh, it's actually the topic of the book I have coming out this year. It's called Choose Growth. But the idea is that it's not the event itself that. That that leads to good or bad outcomes. It's how you've processed the event. It's how you've cognitively figured out sort of what is the meaning of it moving forward. It's not saying that you would have preferred not having the trauma. That you prefer having the traumatic event. You prefer that you lost a a a child, or you prefer that you got into the automobile accident over not. Right. Because of course you wouldn't. Of course you would. Right. That given it happened, and same thing in your your domain, regrets. Given the regret happened, you can't, go, you can't go in the time machine and change it. What is the most productive way? moving? How can you use it as fodder for, for a life of growth? So I just see it as analogous to that.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's a really, really important point about that, that, mm. that negative experiences, let's forget about negative emotions, but just their negative experiences yeah. are not inherently debilitating. They're not. They're inherently challenging. But whether they're debilitating or not depends at least in part on how we respond to that challenge. Now, some of it, just to be fair, some of, when we when we're talking about, about about trauma, some of it, some of our response to trauma is dictated in part by organic biological, biochemical features. There's no question about that. And yeah. so, you know, and and so and some of it actually tips into the realm of. Illness that needs, you know, a medical problem that needs to be treated. But not all negative experiences and negative emotions need to be medicalized. This is something that you see on, I mean, you're, you're a professor. This is something that I see from a distance on college campuses where it feels like it's like the solution to every unpleasantness on a college campus is we need more counselors. And everybody, you know, we need to, everybody has to have a counselor. And I, and, and that, and that worries me because. It worries me because I think that some people desperately do need counselors. That some, some people do desperately need medical help, but not everybody. Yes. And, and when everybody is getting that medical help, it undermines the people who actually do need the medical help.
0: Absolutely. I've noticed that pattern of everyone needs a counselor, but I've also noticed how everyone, every student needs uh, their own accommodation. That's another thing that I've noticed. Their own unique, special accommodation that none of the other students need or require. When in fact the more you look into it deeply, you're like, actually I think every student in this class could probably benefit from, the, from that accommodation. Um, of course there are certain and we're talking we're not talking about the extremes, of course there are certain very specific learning disabilities and disorders that we want to give them as much help as possible. But there is I think what you're pointing to is this knee-jerk reaction in all cases to immediately alleviate this the the the, the uncomfortable right. nature right. of it. Right, exactly. Like immediately go in the mode of, oh, we got to make sure this child's perfectly happy in every way, as opposed to, well, teaching them, you can be, you can be with pain, you can be uh, to a certain extent, you know, you can, you can be with, uh, and even use, not just be, but you can utilize some of this for, for good. Yeah.
2: That your life is going to ha- is be filled with ups and downs and setbacks mm-hmm. and mistakes and traumas. I hope not too many in the realm of trauma. But but it's going to be filled with negative emotions and unpleasantness and discomfort. And trying to insulate yourself or having mom and dad try to insulate you from that is a fool's game. It's actually detrimental to growth. What we need to do is we need to help. We need to normalize. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do in this book, Scott, is normalize regret because it's normal, you know? And so... <laughs> Um, and so we need to we need to you know normalize these negative emotions and but and equip people with ways to deal with them. Not surprisingly, we're not doing either of those. What we're doing is that we're if we're we're implying at least or sometimes stating outright that these negative emotions are somehow exceptional. There's something weird going on. It's totally out of the ordinary. You should never have to experience this negative emotion. Um, and then what we're going to do is we're from the outside are going to fix it for you rather than have you demonstrate the self-efficacy and the moxie to address it yourself
0: yeah i totally get your project here and i think it's a very worthy project and i'm glad you did it i'm actually thinking about titling this episode normalizing regret but i don't know if that's yeah yeah i love it be a good title for this podcast episode yeah you say, and I'm quoting you, regret is not dangerous or abnormal, a deviation from the steady path to happiness. It is healthy and universal, an integral part of being human. Regret is also valuable. It clarifies it instructs. Done right, it needn't drag us down. It can lift us up. You know, you have on the one end, people that you constantly, they want to be happy all the time. We constantly, if they're sad, they want to be happy. You also have those who are the kind of people like, I live my life with no regrets. You have the people that are like, you know, I got nothing wrong with me, <laughs> you know, kind of the other end of the spectrum. And you're saying that's not good either. It's not good just to to say you said the only people I believe I, this is a quote. You said the only people who say I have no regrets are people who either have an immature mind or a grave disorder.
2: Yeah. Well, the only people who don't have regrets, truly, I mean, yeah. given the ubiquity yeah. of this emotion are five-year-olds. There are categories of people who truly don't have regrets, five-year-olds. Yeah. Why? Their brains haven't developed. It takes a fair amount of dexterity cognitively to experience regret because you're moving through time and you're counterfactualing, you're, you know, da, 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 okay? Who else doesn't have regrets? Certain kinds of neurodegenerative disorders, certain kinds of Parkinson's, schizophrenia. Schizophrenia patients often can't experience regret. Certain kinds of Parkinson's disease, certain kinds of lesions in the orbital frontal cortex interfere with that, all right? So people with brain disorders and sociopaths. Everybody else has regrets. I got these people in the book, as you know, who have these tattoos that say no regrets. They believe this credo so deeply they enshrine it on their bodies and that's nonsense because you might as well get a tattoo that says no learning no growth no progress Do you want to walk around with a tattoo that says no learning i mean that's essentially what you're doing
0: have you come across someone who's regretted having that tattoo no regrets
2: i have someone in the book who had a no regrets tattoo and got it removed there
0: you go jeff bosley you you
2: know i love that i love that yeah
0: yeah yeah. Now, you personally, I I I uh, heard in some interview that you said that you one of your big regrets in life is not being more bold. What are you What are you working toward? Uh, you have one eyebrow went up when I said that. Um, is that true? Uh, did I hear you right yeah. saying that? And then, sort of, what what are you working on in your life right now to kind of um, how's it
2: productively
0: identifying that regret? Has it productively helped you moving forward?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think it's because they're. You know, I guess my real answer is I don't know. And I'm trying to figure that out right now. And this book has been a catalyst for my figuring that out. So that's my, that's my honest answer. I think more broad, my, my equally honest but less fully realized answer is that, you know, when you get to... Be, so I'm in my mid-50s. And I have a sense of my mortality in a way that I didn't when I was in my mid-30s. That changes the way I look about things. I look at the, you know, I, you know I, I worked in politics for a while before doing this, and lately I've seen all of these people who I knew from when I worked in politics who were the bosses at the time. Vic Fazio, Madeleine Albright, they're dead. They passed away. And it seems like just a blink of an eye. And at the time that they were the bosses, they were probably about my age right now. And I'm thinking, holy moly, that sure went fast. Are these next years going to go as fast? And when am I going to step up and really make the highest and best contribution that I can make as a person? And that requires, I think, more discomfort than I have in my life right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, even that is a really important realization. Um, as I would tell any of my clients, uh, you know, like, that's great. Like, even if you don't have the fine detour, you know, the fine contours um, fully set out, you know, the fact that you know that about yourself. Because weren't you at a, um, you were at like a college commencement address of your daughters or something when you had this realization as well?
2: Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's, that's when I really started thinking about it. That's when I sort of had a yeah. sort of a moment where I was just, the passage of time was really just crystallized for me. Because I couldn't believe that this person who was just born was, was in its cap and gown. It was just, I mean, a lot of parents have that. It's like, again, I'm not that special. Um, but that's one of the, that was really, like, that was in 2019 when our elder daughter graduated yeah. from college. And, yeah. and that was really a, that was a catalyst for me in pursuing this topic of regret. But I do think that we don't talk enough about our mortality. And, I, and it's because we're freaked out by it. But we still know it, and I've always thought that at some level it's the backbeat to our lives. It's not like the the full melody. It's not the lyrics we're singing all the time. I don't think it should be, but at some point, it's the backbeat that we all know we're going to die, and I think that's the I think that's what gives rise to a lot of these boldness regrets. And knowing that I'm going to die is, and and probably sooner rather than than I would than I imagine, makes me wonder when am I going to actually step up and, and be bold.
0: Absolutely. Something that dawns on me about your, your project is you, you, talk, you hear a lot of talk about deathbed regrets and like yep. all the talk. Of, you, you're not waiting for that. You know, what I like about your book is like, what actions can you take today Based on some regrets you may have had in the past to live a
2: better life moving forward, and I like your project better. I have to say, I'm very. Sc- I, I, I like. I'm not a fan of deathbed regrets for a couple of reasons. Number one, show your work. Like I feel like it's it's completely cherry picked, and like oh, like something somebody whispers a few things to someone who happens to be there at the time, and then it's concocted into a bigger, mm-hmm. a bigger theory. The second is is that you know I'm not sure that that is the moment of our highest lucidity. Yep. Okay, and then third <laughs> right. is like. And then third, it's too late. If if you're thinking about your regrets when you, you you know moments before you're drawing your last breath, it's it's useless. You've squandered it. You've wasted this powerful emotion.
0: I couldn't agree more, and I'm so happy you wrote this book. Again, I, I I'm reiterating this because it's like why wait <laughs> to your deathbed regret to to reflect right. on that. You know, like. 13-year-olds could be reflecting on what regrets they had up to their point, their life. to make, that, that, I mean, there's no, there's no age when you're like, okay, now you should start thinking about your regrets. And I love that. For the remaining time we have today, can I ask you some Twitter questions? Because
2: I put up I put a call. Lay it
0: on me. Did you see I put out a call on Twitter? Do you?
2: I did not. Did? I, I, okay. I, I, I did not. Uh, no problem, but it got a lot. I'm sure that the Twitter questions are astute and challenging. So lay it on me. Cool,
0: and I'm going to just ask in real time. I there were so many questions I didn't have time to process them all ahead of time. Okay, so one is uh, okay. You can regret and be grateful for something at the same time. Would be interested in, in his take on that.
2: Sure, I agree. I mean, just, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. It's like it's like um, it, it's, a, it's actually a very insightful point. So, 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 a couple of things. Let's say somebody regrets taking a job that they don't like. Right. Mm-hmm. So one way to Oh my God, I totally wasted two years of my life on that job. It was, it brought me down. It was terrible. All right. I regret taking that job. So, one way to take some of the sting out of it is to do a downward counterfactual and say, and at least it, you know, but you say, but, but at, at least I met my, my best, my, my close friend, Ed. All right. So, you could, so, so here's the thing. So, you can, you can regret that and be glad that in your, that Ed is in your life right now. And maybe you might, maybe you knew like Ed so much. Maybe you met your spouse at this crappy job. All right. And so you might. So if somebody made you a bargain and says you can go back and not take this job, but you won't meet your spouse, you might say, no, no, I'll take it. I'll take the hit on the job so I can get. It. But the thing is, is like you can, those two things, those two things are, you know, those two things to me are compatible. You can be satisfied with your life and grateful for your life on where it is today, as I am, but also look back on your life and say, oh, I regret that. I regret that. Those things are, are totally compatible.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for that elaboration. Interesting topic. I'd say having been too docile to my inner critics, two questions, if I may, why do some people tend to experience remorse rather than regret and vice versa? And is there any link between sensitivity to regret and neuroticism?
2: Okay. So on the second one, sensitivity to regret and neuroticism, I don't know. My hunch, maybe, maybe, yeah. Right. My hunch, and it's just a hunch, is that there probably is a link between neuroticism and the propensity to ruminate and to wallow? that's a hunch, but I have no idea um, on the um on the difference between on remorse and and regret, I mean I look at remorse as essentially guilt, and to me, guilt is one flavor of regret it's at least moral regret like i don't like 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 if i like I got people who I got people who didn't who wish they had studied abroad. They were too chicken to go overseas and they wish they had they had studied abroad. You know, they're 35 years old and say, so, Oh, if only i had studied abroad. All right. They don't have any guilt about that. They don't have any remorse about that. But if they bullied somebody, they have remorse about that. So for me, remorse is a category of regret, the moral regrets.
0: Wow. I need to think about that more. That's really interesting. My regret not fighting harder when I was sued by a copyright troll. My question, how does Dan recommend we let go or reframe old regrets so we keep moving forward?
2: Okay, so I'm all for fighting copyright trolls. Um, okay. Having been in my own copyright battles, having to, had to engage a very talented copyright lawyer several times mm-hmm. to deal with these weasels. Uh, I'm sorry, I got, so, I got so thrown. What was the question again? So how do we, how do we let go?
0: Yeah. How do we reframe old regrets so we keep moving forward?
2: I think the reframing
0: aspect is interesting there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, what you want to do is you want to, you know, again, regret requires agency. Regret is your fault. Okay. And so uh, it's not disappointment. Disappointment is just external circumstances. So if it is your fault, um, the most important first step to my mind is treating yourself, is actually enlisting self-compassion. That is um, treating yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Uh, so a lot of times when we make mistakes, we lacerate ourselves. We talk to ourselves in ways that are cruel and brutal and vicious in ways that we would never talk to another human being. So we shouldn't talk to ourselves that way. So treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that our mis- your mistakes are part of the human condition, that, that you're not that, again, I keep coming back to this point, you're not that special. And also that you're, any mistake you make, and this is, I think, a big issue that people have, is any mistake you make is a moment in your life. It's not the full measure of your life. I think a lot of times people will take something that represents this tiny little patch of their whole life and say, this embodies my entire life. It fully describes who I am. And that's nonsense. I think that's the first step in letting go is is self-compassion. Kindness rather than contempt, recognizing that these mistakes are part of the human condition, and also recognizing that they're a moment in your life not the full measure of it.
0: Yeah, I think that answers Alexis Reed's question which is how do we as humans release shame or guilt around regret for a decision, behavior, or action? Um yeah. I think
2: that's really yeah. Well, shame suffering. is shame is interesting because because shame is yeah. you know, shame I mean you know, shame is I mean, guilt is I did a bad thing, shame is I'm a bad person. And so yeah. you know, and so you you wanna do is you wanna you wanna go after the behavior, not the essence. You know, um you wanna you, you know, I don't think that any single behavior embodies the full quality of who we are for the same reasons you're talking about, Scott. I mean, where people say, oh, you know, my authentic self is good and just, but I happen to have got bullied somebody, but that's not the real me. You know, so me.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They would frame it in their head as I'm regretful that I wasn't the real, the real me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought this was an interesting question. Is being consistently in the public eye a hindrance to expressing, experiencing regret as much as others? I wonder if someone with celebrity admitting to their mistakes will make them feel they'd be perceived as irredeemable for their actions. As a follow-up, do people experience less regret if they don't feel well received by others in expressing it? I wonder if if some cognitive dissonance we experience puts up walls for reflecting on future experiences. Think like Hmm. any villain in a Marvel movie. Hope these both make sense. Do, do you want to pick yeah. up the ball on any of that? The, the, yeah. the,
2: fir- the first one, the first one makes sense. I think there is, I think there's a fair point that sometimes people in the public eye, particularly in politics, I think more than anything else, but, but maybe, in a, maybe in the broader public realm, you know, they might be, like, if I'm running for office and I, and I admit some kind of regret, I mean, it's possible that my opponents will just completely clobber me for it. And I might be better off tactically not breathing a word of it. Um, I might be better off tactically as a politician. I'm not sure I'll be better off as a human being, so there might be there might be there might be something to do that. On the other hand, you know we know that in certain circumstances, not all, not in certain circumstances, not all, revealing our vulnerabilities, you know, builds affinity. Um, so it's so it's so it's it, it's um, it's it's tricky. But I can see um, in that certain kinds of celebrities would not want to do that, particularly in the political realm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well one person. this is just not a question but I think it's worth uh, it's, it's a nice positive thing John Roberts says no regrets just acceptance of my past and present imperfections at each given moment we're the best versions of ourselves given the environment and headspace we're in we should do our best to learn from the past for our future well-being not dwell on it dwell on it in the present it seems like that's so in line with the message yeah that's amen. kind of like amen the other thing
2: about it me. is that John is John is evaluating the, the decision that he made he's not evaluating John He's evaluating the decision. And I think that's really important.
0: Super important. Um, I'll end here with a really cheeky uh, question. Uh, Trivial or false asks, Daniel is pink, but Stephen is pinker. Ask him how much he likes that joke.
2: I admire the effort behind that joke. So I'll give you a, I give you Professor Pink will give you an incomplete. I think it's a promising line of inquiry, but it needs to be, it needs to be better executed.
0: Daniel, when you ask a question on Twitter, you never know what you're going to get. I love it, and, though. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I try to just give a little diversity of, uh, of the kind of questions people ask. Again, I, w- I want to just end this here by saying uh, once again that I'm so glad you wrote this book. I Thanks. think it really gets to the heart of common humanity we all share. You really illustrate that. And maybe even just knowing that information can help us all um, have greater connections with each other and, and reduce our regret that we didn't have those connections just by having that common humanity awareness. You know what I mean? Here's hoping. Yeah, thank you so much,
2: Dan. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.